This episode of The Candidate Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code the Candor Frame at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. For decades, Palm Springs was seen as a resort town, a getaway destination. It was a second home for stars like Frank Sinatra, Kirk Douglas, and Bob Hope, who found an escape from the voracious appetites of the gossip columns and celebrity magazines. Yet, it's also defined by weather, architecture, and a more leisurely way of life. Nancy Barron has created three bodies of work focusing on contemporary life in Palm Springs. They include a community that lives and celebrates an idealized way of life from decades past. Her images reveal the American penchant for reinvention and the desire to make myth more fact than fiction. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, thank you for making time for me today. I really uh, enjoyed meeting you, and I really have enjoyed learning even more about you and your work since the last time we chatted. Of course. Thank you so much for having me and for your interest in my work. Yeah, it's it's... It gave me a perspective of, of Palm Springs that I never really had. I mean, I've only been there once, which was more sort of in passing. I've known this. I've known the town more out of reputation than than anything else. So it was really kind of interesting to have this sort of be a way for me to kind of dig a little in terms of learning more about the town, the history of the town. Uh, but tic- but particularly this 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 visual aspect is something that's always been a prominent aspect of the town's sort of reputation, and you, you render it really beautifully in your photographs. But l- let's start with your story in terms of how you came to find this town after moving from Chicago, coming to Los Angeles. What led you to go to Palm Springs in the first place? Yeah, well, actually, the first time I went to Palm Springs, it was in the 70s, escaping a brutal Chicago winter to visit friends in LA. And I was sick with the cold. And someone suggested that, well, you should go to the desert, you should go to Palm Springs. And, you know, it's a great place to recuperate. And so I did. And unfortunately, I don't remember what the hotel was, but I remember so clearly lying at a pool in this beautiful sun and in the distance, there was snow in the mountains. And I just thought, this is paradise. And that impression has always stayed with me. And that freshness of that feeling has pretty much stayed with me. And then some years later, It's actually 2006, my husband and I decided to look at properties there for a second home, trying to avoid airports at the time, which, you know, were a little intense. And, uh, and we found this house and we've been in the same house since 06, still also in LA, 
But what I saw when I started living there part time was a very different side of the town from when I had visited as a tourist. I just honestly, I keep discovering things. There's so much to discover. What I, what I try to bring across in all of the Palm Springs work that I make is that there's a side to it that is hard to understand unless you are living there part time. And like you said, people have an idea of what it is and they're probably right, but there's a lot more to it than that. And then the whole preservationist community there, which I got to know. And that is something that really is great to delve into as a repeat visitor or part-time resident. But what was your early idea of what that place was? And as you returned there and eventually decided to, to move there, how did that change? Yeah. I mean, initially what I knew of it was resorts and that's all. And I would go to a resort and stay there. And that was what I knew of it. So I, basically what I knew was the climate and the desert air and the view of the mountains, which you get everywhere in the valley. And then living there, i that's when I really got to know and appreciate the um, mid-century modern aesthetic and the modernists who are preserving this. And it's quite the culture and it's a, it's a great community and it's, it's very welcoming. So I was actually in 09, I was doing a project for someone and with a particular slant in mind. And while I was doing it, I began, I saw so much more than I had seen in the previous three years. And then I just kept going. And I, when I first started documenting it, it wasn't, to have a show or to have a book or anything like that. It was just because I was amazed at what I saw. It, the brilliant colors from the sun, it was so bright and the mountains kept out the pollution and the uh, clouds for the most part. And I was just amazed by not just the lifestyle, but also the desert vibe, the, the colors, the you know, there's sort of a mystical thing of the hot waters running underground and then hot waters as in hot springs. And, you know, it's on um, largely on Native American land. And it just had a magical quality. And still to this day, there are times when I'm headed out there and I feel that I should be staying in L.A. because I have so much to do. And then once I get out there, I get out of the car and it's just this beautiful, warm air and sigh of relief. And that's it. I'm in that vibe. And it's, it's really <laughs> a, it's something unique. And, and also the, the um, you know, mid-century modern architecture and design is something that one can find in a lot of places, but what you find in Palm Springs is, is unique to that area. And it's, Amazing. You know, when people think of architecture, they're all often thinking about, you know, design aesthetics. But one of the things about the nature of Palm Springs, especially during the period in which a lot of these, you know, these homes and in, in, in buildings are being built was that there wasn't AC. So it was a, a big practical consideration in terms of, you know, how do you keep people cool who are living out in the desert? So it's it's kind of a blending of 
you know, of what something looks like, the flow of the space, but also just practical consideration about just being comfortable when it's really hot. Yeah, actually, the AC is what really changed the valley. Obviously, that's when you know it became uh, much more populated. I have friends who have a Spanish house in Palm Springs. That my house was built in '59. Theirs was built in the '30s, and you can just see mm-hmm. the difference in the construction, the thick walls. It's adobe. But my house would never be livable without the AC. It's got, it's a classic post and beam construction and the back of the house is glass. Oh, wow. Yeah. So were you already sort of familiar with, you know, architectural design when you started making the choice to start photographing the community and the the people that live there? Well, I was not so much about that particular style of architecture, but having grown up in Chicago, you know, it's an amazingly wonderful city for architecture. And so I always had an appreciation for architecture. And, you know, as a child, everyone knew the names of the architects of the various buildings. And it was something that, you know, was just ingrained in Chicago life. And, you know, there's a, an architecture tour that goes down the Chicago River. And then when I first started going to Palm Springs as um, a part-timer, as a part-time resident, one thing that really struck me was that my, so I grew up on the south side of Chicago. And then in 59, uh, my family moved to a south suburb that was actually developed in 59. So my house that I spent most of my childhood in was built the same year as my house in Palm Springs. And even though obviously the climates are different and the architecture is different, there's still a feeling, it has a feeling that's very familiar and nostalgic for me. And there's a house in fact on my corner that that's brick, which is really rare in Palm Springs, but Every time I pass that house, I just think of, I look inside and I think about, you know, who lived there when it was built. And it it's very evocative for me. And, you know, a lot of people in Palm Springs who are into the uh, preservation aspect of the architecture, a lot of them were are younger and they, they didn't live during that time. But you know, it's thought of as a kinder, gentler time in American history. And so there's a nostalgia for that. And, you know, they're kind of like reenactors, you know, of of, yeah. <laughs> of the fifties. And they and people dress, you know, in vintage clothes of that vintage. And uh vintage cars are really popular. There's a whole group of people that are, you know, have all their different car clubs. And there's this, it's not just the homes and the architecture, but it's all of the design aspects of mid-century modern America. One of the rare things about about it is that, you know, there's a significant part of that community where they're really sort of adopting this idealized perception of where and how they live. Right, you may get yes. smaller pockets of that in different parts of the country, but this is a very sort of unique take in which, you know, people basically taking the DeLorean back and saying, 
oh, I'm going to stay here rather than coming back. <laughs> I'm here and I like it. Yeah. But, but you, you said that, you know, there are a lot of younger people there and it's, you know, in some of the portraits that you've taken, you know, there are several older folks, you know, who are, I would assume have been there for a while who sort of have adopted it. But tell me about the generational differences between the people who may have lived there for a while and, and, and the newer people that have come in sort of since, especially with respect of sort of sustaining this, you know, this way of life. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, um, well, as I mentioned before, the, 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 the community is really tight. And for instance, if I'm, when I was uh, working on my um, dog, uh, mid-century modern dogs at home project, you know, you you mentioned it to a couple of people, and all of a sudden everybody's raising their hands, and it's very welcoming. And the and the common denominator is this passion for this period of of American history, which is very idealized, as I said but very much appreciated and people are very motivated to pre preserve what is there. And it's been a little difficult the last so many years, but, but they're, they do, they work hard at it and, and they, they're successful, somewhat successful at it. And what the generational aspect, it, you know, it's interesting. First of all, Palm Springs is one of the friendliest cities in the United States, and it's always listed is in, in that way. You know, you go to a party and there are all ages. You know, that's not everyone in Palm Springs is friendly with, you know, everyone else. So it's not that. But within this particular modernist community, there are different ages. And, you know, there's just, it's just, it's sort of like, you know, everyone's in on the joke or the, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it is, which is really a passion. And then there are people who, there are all different ways of looking at it. There, There's the tiki community. And then there's the people who are more into the kitsch aspect of Palm Springs. And then there's the the atomic, there's there's an atomic style of mid-century modern, that time, the mid 50s, 60s. So there, there are different within, you know, the time period, there are different styles. But in terms of, you know, the straightforward mid-century modern design aesthetic, it's a uniting, you know, aspect to the community. And everyone, you know, really supports it and supports anyone who is making any kind of work about it. You know, when I'm doing my projects, everyone's always really helpful and supportive. You know, they'll tell, for instance, there's this house, there, there's the one thing that's really golden to all of us, and, but especially to a photographer, is that there are certain houses that are frozen in time. Whatever, whatever year they were built and or designed, you know, in the interior is frozen in time, has never changed. So there's this one house that was designed, I believe, in the mid 60s by a man who was a designer in the desert at the time. And he sold the house only three or four years after he bought it to a, some to friends, to a family who were friends. And he said that one stipulation was that, that they couldn't change anything at all in the house. And so for many, many years, not even the candy dish or the candy in the dish, nothing was changed. And so um, recently, yeah. So I, I was able to get into that house for a short period at one time, but 
recently a friend told me that a friend who you know knows my work told me that it had been sold and the man was getting ready to change it. And she had one day, which is this upcoming Sunday, where I could get into the house to document um, wow. it before. Yeah. So yeah, that's a wow, you know, that's in Palm Springs, that's a wow. And I take advantage of that. And that's, you know, what I'm saying about people being supportive. This has happened to me a few times where people reach out and say, hey, you know, there's, for instance, I, in my first book, um, there's a photo of a, of a room in, in an, uh, a separate house on the Liberace estate. And a friend, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, I think it was Saturday, she called me and said, you have to get over here. The Liberace house is having a state sale and they're selling it this weekend. And it, it's, it's a chance to see the house. So I ran over there. And then, you know, that's happened a few times. And a friend bought a house, another house that had not been changed. And was that's how I met him, actually. Someone introduced us so that I could go and, and photograph the house. And it this house is amazing. It's it's all different shades of red velvet through the whole house. Oh wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I'm laughing, but I I do I don't think of it as being a joke. I, I think it's fascinating and I always try to be and I've been told I am respectful of the things that I'm photographing because I'm not really into kitsch for, for kitsch sake. Uh, yeah, I I love it just because I kind of grew up with some of that. So when I see it, I just just puts me back there. My wife has some neighbors whose um, interior is pretty much uh, early to mid-70s. Mm. And I just go in there and it's like, oh man, I just, I just loved being in that place. It was just, yeah, everything's comfortable. I mean, couch, if you want to talk about sitting in a comfortable couch, if you get to sit in a couch that was made in the seventies, that was meant to last for decades and you sit in that thing, you just go, oh, I just, but when I used to go to my mother-in-law's house, she had this couch that I think she'd had since the seventies. I would sleep on that couch because it was far more comfortable than the bed. <laughs> I said, no, oh, I'm good right here. <laughs> that actually makes sense, because the beds were not as comfortable then as they are now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but when you started, you know, you've done, you know, uh, you've explored the town in three different books. But when you first started it, talk to me about the process of the initial concept, the idea that you have, and how did that, measure up to what it eventually turned into the the first first book because as you mentioned there were so many different facets of the town that you could explore photographically how did you how did you approach it well as i said i did not start out specifically with the um objective of having a show or making a book or anything like that i just set out to document this amazing place i had discovered and then you know after I want to say probably six years of doing that, I started putting an edit together and that that's where it really takes direction because before the edit, yeah. it was all over the place. And I had the good fortune of meeting Alexa Becker from Care of Verilog in Portland at Photo Lucida. And I showed her this original edit 
and she liked it very much. And she gave me one note on it, which was there were some photos in the edit that were sort of on the ironic side. And she said, I think, you know, it's up to you. You're the artist but you might want to consider not including those. And she was, she would have been likely supportive either way, but she was so right about that. So, so doing that really started to get me to see, you know, what, what's the pattern here? What am I saying? And I, in all of my work, I like to show landscapes, portraits and architecture so I wanted to make sure I had a good balance of that and a good balance of the same type of sensibility of, you know, what I was trying to say. And what I was trying to say basically was that you got to see this, you know, this place is a lot like you think it is, but there are things going on here that you wouldn't know about with, if you weren't living here part-time or if you weren't looking at, at these photos. Um, so, so yeah, that was it. So then I ended up doing, you know, having the book published by Kara Verlog, that first book. And so I feel like um, I had something like only maybe uh, eight months, or not even seven, six or seven months to complete it for the final edit. You know, as I was moving along, I really started, it really started to come together for me as is what was working as a cohesive book and a cohesive feel for this place that not everyone or most people wouldn't be able to see or know about. And I was just really trying to say that, yes, you whatever you think of this place, it is that, but it's a lot of other things too. So I think that that was successful. And then with the next book, you know, I had lived there longer at this time, and it's it's a closer up, it's a more personal closer up view of of the life there. You know, for for instance, in the first book, there's this one house in Little Tuscany called well, it's an East Eastort Williams is the architect, and it's called the Idris House, and the houses are often named for the family you know who built the house, and I'd walk past it all the time, and I take a lot of photos and nothing felt quite, you know, there. So one day, um, it was actually, I think it was New Year's Day, I was walking past the house and I noticed that there was a little green dinosaur with a red bow around its neck um, for Christmas. And so that all of a sudden to me, there was something personal, something you know, a little different about it. So, so that was the photo. So then, and that went into that first book. And then for the second book, now I know the owner of the house and now I'm taking a a photograph from the inside of the house looking out, which is amazing because that house is one of the best examples of this type of architecture in Palm Springs, which is one of the original concepts of um, the original, those, um, mid-century modern architects was that to make the house seem that it was one with the land it was on. So, you know, there's uh, the Albert Frey built a house that has a massive boulder that's half in and half out of the house. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That house is um, now owned by the museum 
and I've taken photos there and it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's small. It's exactly everything in it, including the China was custom made for the house. And it's exactly as it always was. And it's just such a treat to, to go into it. It's almost, it almost has a feeling when you're inside of it because it is so small and compact that you're in a ship, you know, you start to have that kind of a feeling, but it's, you know, it's on, it's up on the hill with an amazing view. It's pretty great. <laughs> One of the things that I think is the, that provides the strength of all of your, your books is the diversity of the kinds of images you have. You know, you have the images of the, of the exterior, you have interiors when you're showing like the furniture and lamps and things like that. But you also, you know, make choices to almost abstract some of the elements like the edges of a pool or pillows, you know, on a couch where you sort of take small fragments of those things and don't really completely reveal them, but suggest that some aspect of it, either the shape, the color, the texture is a, a point of interest, even though you don't have the greater context. When you, when you were photographing, especially you know, during that, that first project, how did that differ, you know, when you started doing the subsequent book, when you learned that having s such a diversity of images are really beneficial when you're doing an edit for a book? Does that make sense? I think so. So, so what I always, you know, on a, obviously after so many years of being in, uh, around, you know, the architecture and the town, I do know something now about that period and about the architects, but I've never set myself out to be an expert on mid-century modern anything. It's just, I'm just showing you what I have seen. I'm not, it's not a how-to mm -hmm. or it's an impression. So that's what you're referring to is, is, is me showing the types of colors that you see there and the types of textures. And at one time I was a stylist for print work, for print work. And I, you know, a lot of times people, when I'm giving talks, people will ask particular photos. So did you set that up? You know, how did you, how did you decide to set that up? And nothing is set up. There's, it's very rare. I mean, one time I was taking a photo of someone's living room and I said, you know, this one can that's sitting in the middle of the table is a little bit in the way. It's okay if we move it. It was her father's ashes. Um, and she did move, but, um, <laughs> but, but, but typically I, yeah, no, I walk in and the houses and the are ready to go. And I will want to show certain close up aspects of, like I said, the color, the texture, the shapes. Um, it, it all adds to the feeling of, of this, of this impression of being there. And it is an impression. It's not, you know, I know the photo you're, you're referring to with the, with the pillow and the sofa. And it's not really saying that much. It's just a feeling, you know, it's an impression of, mm -hmm. of the way, you know, you would feel being in a living room during that time. I don't, did I answer your question? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Cause I, 
when when you, when you sit down to edit, it's been my experience that having such images, even though they may not necessarily be the most dramatic, the most fascinating images of, of all the ones that are being considered, they can help set a pace and a rhythm to the entirety of, of the collected work, whether it's a portfolio yes. or a book. If you just have the same image and you're just repeating it over and over again, you just get the exterior of houses, you know, yeah. you know, fatigue immediately sets in. You know, you have to think about yeah. it as, as a piece of music. You, know, you have to think about, in this case, the book. It's like, how do I want it to be experienced? And having those small details, having a picture that's smaller, or having a picture that is vertical or horizontal, having two pictures opposite opposite a page, and then just having one that sort of spans two pages or just is opposite a blank page. All of those things are things that you have to consider when you're putting things together to make sure that it that it holds up from page one, right? You know, to the end to the end page. Yeah. So for me, a lot of that is it's from, you know, I have a background in filmmaking and I'm very much immersed in, in films. My entire family works in the film business and that the, exactly what you're saying about the close it's, it's for me, it's the camera is moving in and it's moving out and it keeps your eye moving. And it's, it's telling you the story without the monotony of as you mentioned, shot after shot, the same framing. So, so when I'm photographing and when I'm editing, I'm, I'm look, I look very much for that. It's here I need to move in a little. Now I need to move back out. And now, you know, I, we're inside, we're outside, we're, yeah. So that's what that is for me. And like I said, I, they're impressions, but I am, I'm telling a story. I am telling a story. And the story is moving. So that that's where that comes from for me. So when I'm editing, it's always good to have a, a selection of those, you know, different types of, you know, long shot, a close up, a medium shot. Um, it's very much uh, the way because I spent a lot of time standing uh, at the camera during filmmaking and seeing how mm. the cinematographer would create a, a scene in that way. I learned so much by looking at the work of photographers like Lee Friedlander, Roy Decarava, and, and Deanne Arbus. While recognizing that they were exceptional photographs, I didn't always understand why they were special. By returning to their images repeatedly, I eventually understood what they were doing and what they were saying. That's why photo books continue to be so important to me and why I believe that membership in the Charcoal Book Club is invaluable to any serious photographer. Each month's selection reminds me of the unlimited approaches there are to photography. Each title stresses the importance of what one says with a photograph. When you become a Charcoal Book Club member, you'll enjoy a great new title every month. And if you don't like that month's release, you can choose another of similar value. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today. And remember, use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout 
and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. And we can always do with your financial support if you enjoy the work that we do here at The Candid Frame. Each episode requires time, effort, and resources, and your donations help us to make this show possible. You can contribute $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. And if you've been thinking about doing this for a while but have never gotten around to doing it, why not take the time to do it today? It would be a great help. Thank you so much for your continued support. You know, your subject is really kind of fascinating in a variety of different ways for me. You know, when people think of a photograph, they think of a photograph as somehow representing representing the truth, even though that's hotly debated, of course. But <laughs> you, 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 your, your subjects are, are, are kind of straddling the idea of truth and genuineness with also a degree of nostalgia and artificiality. It's these people are making mm-hmm. it real because they're choosing to making it real. But there's also, mm-hmm. there's a lot of fabrication that's happening, you know, which is probably apropos considering Hollywood and Los Angeles were a big influence in development of that, of that town during the mid to late 20th century. But as a photographer going in, you know, you can only tell your story of a place. Right. That's the only thing that you can come to. You can come to the work from a sort of a genuine place. Mm-hmm. So when you're putting, you know, when you're making these photographs and you're putting this work, what do you think that you were personally expressing about this place? Besides, as you said, trying to direct people to really take a look at this. Yeah. What were you, what were you trying to convey personally about? What you? What makes this place so special to you personally? Well, to me personally, uh, you know, it's evocative because I lived, you know, during that time, and I and I remember it very clearly. And as I've said, it's thought of as as a kinder, gentler time. And whether or not it was to everyone, there was that feeling of the music you know in fact there's um a radio station in palm springs that plays all the old standards you know the frank sinatra and and all of that which is interesting in itself because you know you're driving around looking at these houses and you're listening to this this music of the era so it is pretty much immersive you know it's an escape it's whether or not you know you want to believe that it was that wonderful it, it, it does have a feeling of escape. And, and it's quite immersive, as I said, in terms of, you know, the cars and the, and the clothes. And I guess what I'm trying to share in, in the photos and in the books is that feeling. Whether or not it's, it's about the place, I want people, in fact, I've had people say that when they look at it, they are brought back to a certain time in their life that that of which they have fond memories so that's what basically that that is the main thing that i'm trying to do is to take someone for a little you know respite in this this beautiful sunlit colorful place 
that uh, is somewhat the same as it was. And, you know, there's, there's always a nostalgia for the past, regardless of the period. I don't know if we'll say that about this time in history, but but there is. <laughs> yeah. And and that's what I'm trying to use. So for instance, you know, the, the latest book, the mid-century modern dogs at home, um, which is kind of an allusion to the old Hollywood at home, you know, portraits and photos that were made. You know, I, I was that book was I, I was finishing that book at the beginning of COVID and it was published during COVID. And you know, you, you can't help but think, wait a minute. I've got this book about these dogs in these mid-century modern homes and the <laughs> world is going to hell. And what am I doing here? But so many people responded to it and, and say, you know, it's just what I needed. It was such a balm and it, it's so fun. And um, so that that's, you know, that makes it worth it to do that. And and I, and with that particular book too, I like that, um, you know, the kids kids respond to it, too, which is fun. I just gave a talk actually during Modernism Week, which was in February, which is the first time since COVID that it was live. And there were kids in the audience and they were really engaged and asking questions. And they, you know, came up afterwards and it was really nice. Well, I'm a sucker for any dog. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I, I, <laughs> my wife can't, can't get me to shut up sometimes about them, but uh. One of the interesting things about you is that you you are very adept in getting getting press on your books, you know, because I think that's as, as important as anything related to the creation of the book, and that's that's a skill set unto itself. So tell me about you know what you've learned is helpful in terms of getting exposure on the book, so it can get in the hands of the people that that love it. Well. Uh, what, what was interesting was working with Kara Verlock. So they're, they're, they, they released the book in Europe ahead of the U.S. And because they allow for the book to be shipped to the U.S. And it can be as much as, uh, you know, five, six months. And they start to do some publicity in Europe. And with the first book, it just went crazy they started and it just kept feeding into more and more things in fact um the i the new york times did a an article about it in the Re sunday review section the book was meant to be released in the u.s in september and the article came out in august and mm. the book sold out before it was even before it even arrived wow. um and they did great it. yeah and then People like Fast Company um, picked up and um, there was this um, amazing store in Paris called Colette and they did, you know, they they do publicity also and, and they they had it in store and it just kept feeding on, you know, from one to the next. And what I learned is that when this, first of all, you know, this is my first book. So it's not like I had experienced it before. So what I learned, what the big lesson I learned and that I would share with people is that when that starts rolling along, it's really important to pay attention and to, you know, that things were starting to get overlooked and 
to really appreciate the moment because, you know, it's very temporary, <laughs> these things. And to, yeah, consider everything and everyone who's interested in the book and to enjoy it. Because with that particular book, I wasn't really, you know, prepared for it to be, you know, that popular. And the thing is, is that, you know, the photos, you know, they're very graphic. They, they're, they're really, they're great eye candy for, you know, a magazine or a, a newspaper. And in fact, um, the cover of the first book is a photo of me, the, um, the Chicago and, being in heaven, walking past, it's called Sunday, Sunday morning, something like that. In any case, it's, it's me in a caftan. You don't see me. You just see the skirt walking um, past the pool. And that simple photograph was so popular that Apple actually used it as a landing page for five years for, you know, different apps and yeah. <laughs> and every once in a while, someone would say, Hey, I saw your, you know, um, but it was, yeah, they're, they're colorful and graphic and they're, they're, you know, they're evocative of something that makes people happy, whatever it is, you know, whether it's that just the colors or the light or the, what it's, you know, where it's, um, located or so, so then the next book, it also did really well. And then the same, same situation. And then the, the third book, the dog book, it was a different publisher, an American publisher, and it was during COVID. It, the first article was in um, The Guardian. They said that it had about the most hits they'd ever had in an article. But that also fed into things. You know, there's, I don't know if you remember, but there's a photo of a, a black and white poodle, which is called a party poodle in front of a, a pink, a vintage pink Cadillac convertible yes, and the uh -huh. house is painted pink and white. Yeah. That has gone everywhere. <laughs> People, you know, if it's an easy grab for publicity, you know, people want, they want to show that photo. So it did, in, in fact, it did really well in Japan, in Japan, Newsweek, a, a few different, um, things on that and you know all over Greece all over the world really and you know like I said before it it was it was good to have just a slight break from all of the you know news and sadness that was going on so how do you feel that the publication of the books and the resulting press changes or helps you with respect to exhibition of prints and sales and things like that. Okay. So the first book I had, I had several shows of that work, but I did not get, uh, get signed to a gallery and I still have not gotten signed to a gallery. And then I'd say the same. Well, actually, well, yeah, the, they've all, they've all been shown. The third, the dog book was at, in um, a show uh, at the Griffin Museum of Photography in Boston, well, in Winchester, which is just outside of Boston. And unfortunately, it was during COVID. So, you know, I didn't go. There were, I've had actually, so I have a series. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but it's about Holocaust survivors who yes, yes, found their way to Palm, the Palm Springs area, at, you know, toward the end of their lives. And that actually, I've shown that, 
probably most, and particularly recently at the LA Museum of the Holocaust, and now it's being represented by a woman who represents traveling, you know, to uh, traveling uh, shows to museums. So it's it's starting to get placed at museums. But, the, you know, that's different. Those It's all nonprofit. The whole point of making that work was to get it out and to make sure that people saw it and knew that it was there and that those people were there. So that it's perfect for that. Yeah, I have a, a series about trailer life in Palm Springs. And I had a show of that work. Actually, I had a few shows of that work. Yeah, so the books when, well, the trailers and the survivors were not published in books, and I don't know that they will be. A book does, not only does it promote that idea of of showing the work, but it's also a lot of print sales result because, you know, people are looking. I had a really cute, um, this vet in by vet, I mean veterinarian, in Berlin contacted me that he wanted one of the photos for his vet practice. And so he purchased one. And I get a lot of things like that where people say, oh, well, this photo, you know, it reminds me of such and such, and I just have to have it. So I will, there will be direct sales in that way. You know, my website has my email address on it. So people (laughs) do contact me and they contact me for the most random things like, do you think this looks so beautiful? Do you think I should move there? And if I bring my dog there, will I be able to take my dog to restaurants? And all these uh, really interesting queries about Palm Springs, just, you know, from seeing the work, but I actually, I do know one person who moved there because she was intrigued by the photos and she did. Oh, wow. Life changing. She didn't say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for oh, better, wow. for worse, she didn't stay. So, yeah. When we first sat down to talk, you were sharing work not of Palm Springs, but like of East Hollywood, which it is very different from Palm Springs. Let's talk a little bit about about that. What's the allure of that part of Los Angeles to you? Well, um, yeah, it's actually it's it's in Hollywood proper. So, so all of well, not all of my work, but most of my work is about home and um, the effect that its location has on the inhabitants there. So, so there's this, so I live right near Hollywood, you know, less than a mile from Hollywood. And, you know, so I'm driving through this area in Hollywood for, for many, I've lived in the same house for, you know, more years than I care to say. And I'm going through this neighborhood. And finally, after so many years of driving through this neighborhood, I said, wait a minute, this what is uh, this this is not like the other neighborhoods there's something very different going on here because you know well my neighborhood is protected from mansionization but you know there's a lot of that going on in LA and a lot of gentrification and this neighborhood just never changed and it looked different in in many ways and and I and I started to research it and discovered that right in Hollywood there's actually two um, areas of Hollywood that were redlined in the 30s um, when, you know, the government set out, the HOLC set out to determine which neighborhoods were riskier or, or what, what the level of risk was for loans for certain neighborhoods, for all neighborhoods in the United States. And then those at a high risk were redlined, you know, for people, for Hollywood, you know, 
once again, the, the idea of Hollywood does not, it, that does not fit in with the idea of, of Hollywood. You know, people think of it as glamorous and, uh, you know, mansions. And so I started researching it and I was able to find a map. And then I started documenting this one neighborhood that, that honestly is less than a five minute drive from my house. What I discovered is that, the, well, in redlining in general, <clears throat> it affects generational wealth. It affects the life trajectory of, of the people who, who own those homes. But for instance, in the photos, you know, there's a lot of chain link fences. And in my neighborhood, there are security company signs. And in this neighborhood, there are, um, you know, no trespassing signs or keep out signs. You know, the front yards of the houses are sort of used as extended because the homes are very small. So the front yard of the home is used as an extended space. So it, it's filled with, uh, you know, a lot of things. And they're, they're actually, they're, they're really interesting to me because they have a lot more to say about the people who live there than houses that don't have these qualities. But yeah, so I've started um, documenting the exteriors during COVID. You know, I, do, I've, I have a lot of them and I have enough to consider it a series, but I'm still developing, you know, where I want to go from there. Do I want to start you know, meeting some of the people who live there and interviewing them and, you know, do I, or do I want it just to be the exteriors as it is? And, you know, that's one of the things I love about documentary photography is it gives me a chance to examine something. I, you know, I had just been driving past these houses for, you know, 30 or more years without thinking, wait, what, why are these so different from the houses, you know, just a few minutes away? So anyway, so yeah, so that's what I've been doing there. And, you know, it is Hollywood, like Palm Springs, there's an international idea of what Hollywood is. And like I said about Palm Springs, some of it's right, but it's not, all, there's more to it than just that. Yeah, so this particular area was, it was redlined for, um, due to the racial makeup, but also because of its proximity, both to, Hollywood Forever Cemetery and Paramount Studios, um, which is considered an industrial area. You know, in the report, I, I did, I was able to get the original report from the HOLC and the language is very straightforward about why it's, it's a risk. And in addition to the homes, there are a lot of poorly constructed apartments because people who couldn't afford to buy homes in this area were forced to live in apartment buildings uh, with price gouging landlords. This, and so the apartment buildings are somewhat different, also, and and not changed. There's not there's not the the renovations. And what I am seeing is that there are there's development of buildings that do not fit into the neighborhood. That the the developers are given incentives for various reasons. So there's that. And then sometimes, you know, the a house will be demolished and then it takes a long time before the land. So there are a lot of empty lots. Oh, yeah. 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 That's the long history of segregation and housing discrimination in Los Angeles. You know, it, people don't think of 
Los Angeles is sort of being that way, but oh, it, it most certainly is. You just gotta, you know, scratch away the gloss a little bit, and you'll you'll see it, which is fascinating, especially for people who may not be familiar who are outside of the country or too young to understand what redlining is. Uh, just Google it a couple of times, especially associated with Los Angeles. Yeah, and you'll find some really yeah. interesting stories to be told. Yeah, and it's what people don't always, even when they know about redlining, what they don't always understand is that it's not that it affected people, you know, in the 30s and during, it affected, it still is affecting the housing crisis in LA and segregation in LA and other places too. But, you know, I'm addressing what happened in, in LA, but yeah, it's ongoing. It's not, it's not something that happened then and, and it's, you know, it's over. It's no, it's ongoing. Yeah. It, it persists in, in, in the ramifications persist for generations. So, well, my last question for you is, is I ask each guest to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, I'd have to say right now, especially given the what's going on in Europe and the threat to democracy, that that it would be the photojournalists who are covering the situation in 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 Ukraine. I know Lindsay Adario is doing amazing work for the New York Times. Lindsay Adario, yeah, and um, Peter Turnley has made some. I mean, there are a lot of them. So in terms, so I, mm. I really recommend, I think, I can't think of what the hashtag is, but there is a way to search all the work that's being done there. And, and I highly recommend that people do that because, you know, these people, these, these photojournalists, they're risking everything to, to bring us the truth. And, you know, people can say, oh, well, it's their truth. It's what they wanted to show. But there's enough of it there that if you if you really spend time with it, it you can really understand the plight of uh, uh, the personal plight of the people there and what's going on. And right now, I think that in terms of I, I still you know look at all types of photography, but that is what is um, really catching my attention. Yeah, I'll not find that hashtag. And for people who are listening, I'll, I'll include it in, in the show notes. But Nancy, thank you so much for sitting down with me again. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Varian X, it's a pleasure. Thanks to Nancy for joining us. Find out more about her and her work by visiting nancybarron.com. And if you're a fan of our work, you have different ways to support us. You can write a review on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on your social network, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And you can support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to Christopher Tashner and Leanne White for their generous contributions. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, 
and this is The Candid Frame.